Welcome to Pushback, I'm Aaron Maté. The award-winning journalist Roberto Lovato is the author of a new book. It's called Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. Hi, my name is Roberto Lovato, journalist and author of Unforgetting, a reported memoir excavating the real American dirt beneath headlines about MS-13, caged Central American children, and the humanitarian crisis of immigration. Headlines in which the voices of Central Americans in the United States have been silenced and forgotten. Unforgetting is also about an underworld journey, my journey across the cities, forests, and deserts of the 2,500-mile chain of forgotten, dead, and devalued life that begins in El Salvador, where I visit mass graves, morgues, and hideouts where gangs and governments have killed, dismembered, and disappeared their victims for decades. Along the way, I encounter gang leaders, death squad operatives, and guerrilleras who reveal their sometimes startling truths. Unforgetting also chronicles my inward journey to find the stories of revolutionary hope, poetic imagination, and the tenderness that survives the terror. Unforgetting also leads me to Los Angeles, the birthplace of the gangs that would later be exploited for political gain. Eventually, I return to my birthplace, San Francisco's Mission District, to the stories of my immigrant family, including those of my father, Ramon, who bore the astonishing secret that would alter my life. I'd like to invite you on this journey towards forgotten love and healing that we must all take if we are to face the crises of our time. Please join me in the adventure of Unforgetting. Roberto Lovato, welcome to Pushback. Happy to be with you again, Aaron. It's great to have you on. There's a lot in this book. I feel like it can teach us so much about the current moment we're in with the reckoning with police violence in the U.S., with racism in the U.S., the ongoing migrant crisis. And there's so much in here about trauma and violence, the violence that the U.S. has inflicted on Central America, the trauma that that causes, the trauma of the perpetrators or some of the perpetrators of this violence and how it has such a big impact both on Central America, which you write about, and also back on the US. Let me start by asking you about that on this theme of, of trauma and violence and how you explored it in your book. Yeah, well, um, I'm happy to be here, as I said. And, uh, you know, you know me from reporting on immigration and policing and other issues, but I've never done any interviews really about my personal life until now. And I felt like the way that I could communicate my understanding about things like violence and trauma uh, in between the United States and El Salvador as kind of an object lesson would be to tell my own story, uh, which I've never been out about. So in my own story, I grew up here in San Francisco. I'm on Mission Street in San Francisco's Mission District. Uh, I'm here about three blocks from the working class street, down the street from the projects that I grew up on with a crowded immigrant family from El Salvador. And I grew up in a house of um, a lot of secrets. And a lot of our families have a lot of secrets oftentimes. And Salvadorans, having gone through one of the more intense and extreme experiences of extreme violence in the 
beginning in the 19th through the 20th century and into the present in the world. Uh, I I, I, kind of like bring the violence back home, which is one of the ways I do it. I do it by uh, telling the story of uh, the secrets in my family, for example, why my father, my mother had pictures of all her family everywhere in our living room, you know, and we went to visit my family all the time. There were no pictures of anybody from my father's family except one, his mother, Mama Te, who's a, a figure in the book. And so the book is a, is, a, is about my journey to discover this really astonishing secret that I won't share because I want the reader to kind of experience what I went through when I discover the source of not just the violence in my family, and in my life, but also this in, in violence in El Salvador, and that's related to the United States. I guarantee you it's an astonishing secret. Other people have, who've read it have told me it's such, but um, so it's my book is about, gets at trauma indirectly. It gets at, um, you know, I don't even use the word trauma in the book except when somebody else says it, because I want the reader to just share their own experience of trauma in the reading, because we all carry it as, as members of the 21st century, <laughs> we cannot look at the moment we're in, in the world right now. So I do it through through sentence level, through silences in the book, through secrets that I eventually discover, through just understanding the different the relationship between what happened, say in 1932 in El Salvador, the Matanza, which was the one of the most violent episodes in Latin America and world history, actually, in terms of the number of people killed per day in a concentrated space per week, um, according to scholars at Oxford, um, you know, or the condition from La Matanza in 1932 to the war that I witnessed, that I was actually a, a party to, and I was not just a journalist, I was a urban commando that I joined the guerrillas. One of my secrets is actually revealed in the book, and I think um, I then go to the gangs and, and their underworld. So my I do my book as a kind of an underworld journey into all these different worlds of violence, trauma, but also of overcoming, of beauty, of the sublime and of the powerful, which I think is important as, you know, you, the son of a, uh, of a psychologist I've admired for a long time, would know that, you know, there's, it's also about resilience if you're going to face the abyss. Yeah, my father, uh, Gabor Mate, for those who don't know him, is a doctor and a physician who survived the Nazi Holocaust as an infant and his own experiences growing up under Nazi occupation in his infancy have really informed his views about, about trauma. But in your own story, Roberto, not giving away the secrets you reveal in the book, but well, giving away one of them now, if it's okay, I won't, I, not the ones about your father, but about you, as you alluded to where you reveal, you know, I've known of you for a very long time. This was um, just a huge revelation to read that you, as a young man, actually joined the guerrilla movement uh, in El Salvador to fight the U.S.-backed fascists. How did you go from voting for Ronald Reagan to then fighting against Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, fascist proxy in El Salvador? There it is. You you outed me for having been a right-wing evangelical Christian who in 1984 got on his knees 
over here on Valencia Street, right nearby on 21st in Valencia. I'm on 26th in Mission right now. Got on his knees to pray for the election of Ronald Wilson Reagan in what was known as the Open Door Alliance Church. I was an at-risk kid. I was engaged in robbing, dealing drugs. I had friends that were killed. I had friends that committed suicide. I was stealing cars and doing a lot of uh, illicit activity and, and, and uh, you know, had to get out of the life because it was getting dangerous for me. And I had a friend who planted the seed of Jesus Christ in my head. And I'd also had the seeds my mom planted from guilt tripping me about not doing my first Holy Communion as a Catholic. And so I read the Bible voraciously, but never practiced it. And then I decided to get born again. And, you know, I was there for a few years and then I left that and I went to El Salvador and suddenly the war in El Salvador came home in the 80s, in the mid to late 80s in my life. And, you know, I started working with refugees I started seeing some of the most ignoble and noble things there are to see in life. Ignoble being the U.S. funded support for a fascist military dictatorship. And I do mean fascist military dictatorship that is responsible for killing 85% of the 80,000 people the United Nations Truth Commission estimates were killed. And the UN Truth Commission also said that the Salvadoran uh, government sponsored by the U.S. with guns and everything was responsible for 85% of that. So, you know, I, I'd seen places where children were bombed. I visited mass grave sites where up to 600 people were killed in one, in hours, slaughtered, most of them women, children, and elderly. You're talking about places like El Mosote that later on I would see the bones of the victims where 1,000 people were killed in a matter of hours by the U.S. trained Art Lecoq Battalion that was you know, trained in the School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia, whose leaders. And so, you know, half of the victims of El Mosote were children under 12, and half of the children under 12 were children under six. And so we, we really are talking about a fascist military dictatorship. And I got so pissed off, quite frankly, that, you know, the U.S. born kid that I was decided to reject the United States. I no longer called myself American, and I decided to join the FMLN guerrillas, and I became an urban commando working in, in the capital of San Salvador to sabotage infrastructure and, 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 and attack, you know, like installations of the military. And so what was that like for you, going from your upbringing in San Francisco to, to guerrilla warfare and dealing with logistics and this, you know, this, this, brutal, this brutal war that was so horrific? Um, you know, I was a kid at the time. I don't know that I would have the ovularity or testicularity to do it now, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but back then I was just a crazy kid who wanted to do right and wanted to join the, uh, the good fight, which, which in fact, at that time, the FMLN was the good fight. 85% of most of the people killed during the war were killed by their own government, fascist military dictatorship. And so... You know, I wanted to, 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 to do right. But looking back on it, I also think it was, I was rescuing my own kind of folkloric sense of what it meant to be Salvadoran. You know, I had gotten like a postcard version from my family because, you know, your father, you know, that after a, an episode like the Holocaust or extreme violence, like we saw in El Salvador, 
or genocide like in Guatemala, the family would tend to like just create this this um, wall of silence and darkness about what happened in the past. And I had actually a psychologist give me a book uh, called The Memorial Candle about studies of Holocaust survivor families where there's often one child who would want to pierce the darkness and the silence with the memorial candle and go in and light up the past. So, it, so if I was Jewish, I would be that child in my Salvadoran family. And so um, joining the guerrillas was a, a kind of a, a different way to be Salvadoran and it transformed my life. I got to, like I said, I got to see some of the most ignoble things there are to see in life. Death on a mass scale, the complicity of my U.S. government and funding all this and destroying the economy, laying the foundation for the gangs to be, you know, to, 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 to rise up. And um, and then the more noble things of a, of a people whose just ferocity, not just to fight, but to survive and not just to fight, to survive, but to overcome and to to have a, a dignity and a, and, a, and a power that I had never really understood until I really engaged in, in, in the war. And I think one of my motives for writing the book right now is that the war is just one episode of many episodes of extreme violence and overcoming that Salvadorans face. So when you're dealing with Salvadorans in the street, you're dealing with people that have this intense experience of not just violence, but of overcoming. And so I feel like, yeah, I wrote the book anticipating things like what we're facing now with Donald Trump and the neo-fascist rise. And I wanted to share whatever Jedi knowledge not just in terms of a guerrilla movement, but in terms of Salvadoran culture and overcoming, I had to share for a moment of such epic proportions like we're in now. Well, speaking of sharing knowledge, let me ask you about how you deal with the anger from witnessing what you witnessed. You know, you saw personally the remains of the people who were massacred in El Mazate. And by the way, when I first read about El Mazate as a teenager, that's that planted the seed for me. Um, to be a journalist. I realized that that's, that was a noble calling and could have an impact and could help bring justice and fight evil. But we, after witnessing that um, and, and witnessing violence firsthand, you still have people today who were involved in those crimes in the US who are now even back in government, like Elliot Abrams. So how do you deal with having lived through that, covered these stories and knowing that the, the perpetrators are still around, they're still uh, in the halls of power with no justice at all. H how do you emotionally handle that yourself? I deal with it by writing a book. <laughs> and before writing the book, good question, Aaron, really. Um, you know, before I embarked on the journey of the book, the first thing that I did was retain the services of a therapist not too far from here from where I am. And it turns out the therapist was also the son of a Holocaust survivor. And so the ther therapist provided me tools and we mapped out the terrain of my life, of my inherited trauma that I got from my father in particular, the trauma that I myself lived through growing up here in poverty and violence in San Francisco, the trauma of the Salvadoran experience in El Salvador, the trauma that I witnessed among the gang members and clandestine hideouts and killing and the of that phase and then the, the 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 you know the trying to piece it all together so the way i 
did what I did with my rage was I channeled it because I, I learned thanks to Ronald Reagan that I would never give anyone my molten anger like I gave Ronald Reagan that because that molten anger was so hot that it it helped me destroy myself and so you know over time you know you learn like when you learn in guerrilla warfare like friends of mine who were trained by the Vietnamese generals that defeated the US they taught my friends who some of whom were commanders that war is primarily what we would call a psychological, they called it spiritual act. Uh, it's primarily psychological in terms of the animus of your adversary, which you want to be low, the animus of the people in between, which you want to be neutral or aligned with yours, and the animus especially of your troops, that so that when the bullets fly, you're going to hold your ground and you're going to fight because you have something, high, you have a higher purpose that you're fighting for. And so that was like the Jedi knowledge of revolutionary warfare. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty badass. <laughs> and, 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 and having been exposed to some of this, I, I knew that I would need some of that to actually go in and look at the abyss. As philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche would tell you, be careful when you look at the abyss because it will look back at you. And so I retained a therapist. And I, we mapped out the terrain, and then I mapped out the terrain in terms of how I was going to write the book and how I was going to distribute the anger and turn it like the, the volcano's molten lava, which is what, when it mixes with water and minerals, becomes, turns El Salvador's countryside, like where my mom is from, at the foot of a volcano, Chinchontepec, into the most fertile, beautiful, green, verdant, animated place in El Salvador, if not Central America. And so I put a lot of beauty into it. And the way you get, I got through going into my own underworlds was to make sure that I brought lots of beauty and memory and that I excavated those memories because oftentimes what happens is that our, our heart gets lost in the darkness. And so, you know, the darkness is internal and the darkness is external. And so I took my rage and I turned it into beautiful things that, for example, right now I'm, I wrote a piece here in the San Francisco Chronicle about Joan Didion here in California, fellow Californian, grew up in Sacramento, not far from here, goes to El Salvador for two weeks, mostly spends most of her time with the um, with the embassy and comes back with these fabulous lines because she's such an incredible writer. She says, terror is the given of the place. And that phrase became the primary referent for Salvadorans and El Salvador in the English language to this day. It's the most off-quoted phrase about Salvador and El Salvador and Salvadorans. And so, you know, I'm like, when I first read that as an undergrad at Berkeley, I was like, whoa, that's deep. She's talking about my people. Wow. And I try to fit my own experience into that. And I was like, well, this doesn't quite fit because it's not just about terror. And so now my book balances that, that kind of colonized view of us with the fact that Terror is the given of the place, but also lo love is also the given of the place. So I took the rage and I transformed it to the degree that I could into love. Well, you know, speaking of white writers trying to speak for colonized, uh, brutalized people uh, in foreign countries that are not their own. Um, let me ask you about 
your recent efforts to also correct the record and and, and uh, center Central American voices in all the coverage and writing about Central America. You were a part of a a movement to that pointed out that in all the coverage of the migrant crisis, there was just not very many Central American voices. Talk about how you went about that, who you went after. I believe there was a certain book that came out, a novel that written by a white writer that tried to represent the migrant crisis. And you push back on that. Yeah, um, that's a great question, Aaron. I, you know, El Salvador taught me, if El Salvador taught me anything, that there's a direct relationship between the stories we tell about ourselves and that others tell about us and the propensity of we ourselves to kill ourselves or the propensity of others to kill us. Okay, story precedes physical murder. Okay, that's just a standard for anybody that understands and has studied the uh, warfare or murder, crime. You have to, before pulling the trigger or stabbing someone, you have to take away their humanity. And that's a story. That's an act of storytelling in your mind. And so... You know, I, that gave me the permission from having been an activist for a long time to transforming myself into a writer. And what I would say, I try to be, and I, ca I try to carry on a poet warrior tradition. And so, um, you know, and that, so I view, I view narrative and storytelling as part and parcel with politics. I've never separated the two. And I, I you know, when I saw this, you know, initially as a journalist, I saw you know, the, I did a study of the um, child separation crisis of 2018 that everybody watching, I'm sure, remembers because it was one of the most uh, popular stories, one of the most important stories in terms of the sheer numbers of of uh, stories about it, like hundreds of the child separation crisis of 2018 when Donald Trump tried to institute a policy. There were protests all over the United States. Migrants inside were protesting, but that didn't get coverage. So uh, I, you know, I, I went as a, as a journalist, but also as a Salvadoran. I said, OK, most of the people, according to Homeland Security statistics, in these immigrant prisons, the ones being separated and caged, probably like at the time, about 90 percent or more were Central American from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador primarily. So my question as a journalist was, how many of the stories include... Central American scholars like Suyapa Portillo or Lacey Abrego, uh, Steve Osuna, Jorge Cuellar, and you know, I can name up dozens of them off the top of my head because they're household names among Central Americans. How many Central American community leaders like Larissa Cuadra, who works just down the street from here in the Central American R Resource Center, or Marta Arevalo in Los Angeles, or many other Central American leaders, community leaders, how many lawyer, Central American lawyers who deal, who have dealt with these matters for 10, 20, 30 years, and how many journalists like me and other others of us who've been covering these issues for a very long time, how many were in all those hundreds of stories? And guess how many I found, Aaron? I'm gonna guess uh, uh, not very many. Ni mierda, zero. <laughs> okay, not a one in hundreds of stories, when the central actors in the stories, those most impacted were Central American. So that would give you some sense of the, 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 the feeling that we've had not just in 2018 or 2020, we Central Americans have been here in large numbers 
since the 1950s and especially since the 1980s and late 70s even. So we've had to deal with this time and again, whether it's Joan Didion, whether it's U.S. journalists, or whether it's people winning prizes today for telling Central American stories. And so you have this book, American Dirt, written by this author, Janine Cummins, who just a few years before, a couple of years before she published American Dirt, told the New York Times that she was white. Then suddenly, as American Dirt comes out, which is about a family, a mother and a child who travel on La Bestia, the train that comes north, comes out and she finally discovers he has like a one-eighth Puerto Rican. And so they, they dress her up in these folkloric outfits for, 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 for public relations purposes. And they trot this book out in her as if there's some new, there's a new day in immigration writing, the new Steinbeck, or as Sandra Cisneros said, this isn't just the most important novel of the Americas. This is the no this novel of America. This is the great novel of the Americas. And I read and I actually read the book and I was astonished because it is full of racist stereotypes, um, stupid mistakes of language. The plot is ridiculous. And um it's it's basically taking a Central American story and turning it into a Mexican story of a middle class Mexican mother who and her child, who after a, a, a narco killing, uh, decide to jump on La Bestia, the train that comes north with migrants. Well, that train, if anybody knows anything about it, like I've gone down there, is is a Central American train. The only Mexicans on the train are the conductors and the criminal elements who pick off the migrants on the way up north. And so she basically took a Central American story, made it a Mexican, middle-class Mexican story, and with, with which is with the most utter implausibility, because if you covered immigration for 30 years like I have, you know that a Mexican middle class person can tell her kid, hey, listen, let's let's um, let's fly a plane into LAX and overstay our visas and stay with our middle class cousins in, you know, in Huntington Park or something. Or they could drive their car north or have a family member drive a middle-class car up north or you know there's all these different ways if you have money that you can come north but the last thing anybody wants to do is tell their kid hey son listen we have all these choices but let's ride this train of terror where people get their limbs hacked off where people have been cut in half where people have been murdered by the by the criminal elements on the trains just for the fun of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a ridiculous premise. So I'm along with Miriam Gerba, who staged the camp, you know, who uh, wrote a scathing critique of the book. And then David Bowles, who joined her, I kind of approached them and I said, hey, I got this idea. Let's go and challenge the publishers of this awful book to do right by Latinos. And so there was born Dignidad Literaria. We shook the cage of Macmillan Publishing, one of the most powerful publishing entities in the U.S. and in the world. And and we got results. They hired new people. They made commitments. It's not going to fundamentally change the equation because we're still dealing with a capitalist entity committed to profit and 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 before storytelling. So, but still, we we managed to shake them up. And more importantly, we managed to shake up the consciousness of Latinx our writers, readers, and community about the need to tell our own stories and own them and, and push for them. And that's what I'm trying to do with my book. You even got Oprah Winfrey to engage with 
your criticism, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say engaged. She was, uh, her hand was forced. You know, like 100 writers or something, like 100 something writers, prominent writers, wrote a letter to her uh, concerned about her promotion of this silly book as some great work of literature. And, you know, you know, the book got seven figures where others of us aren't getting seven figures and we actually know the reality. And so uh, Oprah Winfrey, you know, was forced to make public statements. She had a special just on this book. But instead of inviting Miriam, David and I, she invited other Latinos who they felt I think they could deal with in a more, you know, we like the barbarians. So you don't want the barbarians at the table. I was being way too optimistic there. Forgive me. Um, on a similar issue, let me ask you about the migrant crisis. It's been fascinating me to observe it. You know, it's not an issue that I'm intimately familiar with it, but you know, one of the reasons I've, I know about it is because I worked at Democracy Now! for 10 years and my colleague there, Renee Feltz, was covering the uh, abuse of migrant families under President Obama. And you were as well. We had you on many times to discuss it. And you were among a handful of journalists bringing attention to this issue. All of a sudden, under President Trump, it becomes a, a, a mainstream issue. Whereas before, under Obama, I remember just how difficult it was to get coverage of this outside of, you know, alternative progressive spaces. It just was not a major issue, even though we had the same pictures, you know, Jay Johnson, the Obama Department of Homeland Security secretary, touring a migrant prison with kids in cages, the same cages that are holding children now. And you, and you who have been at the forefront of this issue for so long, I'm just wondering if you talk about the shift that has happened, what prompted people to begin admitting that this was a major issue and and when you began noticing it starting to, you know, just become so mainstream. Yeah, you know, um, my book, Unforgetting, begins, the, the opening chapter is in one of these immigrant prisons. And it begins in 2015, when Obama was president. I don't say Obama's name. I didn't want my politics to get into the way of a, of a story that holds its own in, in terms of, say, more universal values and themes. So I, I made that strategic decision based on knowing the terrain of publishing in the United States. I want people to read the book. And, you know, they can just you know go in and figure it out for themselves. It was Obama who was president. So, um, you know, my journey begins there. And I've been, you know, that's how I came to this was, you know, this child who to witness things I don't want to repeat on the air just because I don't want to trigger anyone out there. Just, needless to say, it was supremely horrific thing that this child told me they witnessed. And I heard it and I just had to step aside and start crying. His mom starts crying. My friend starts crying. And at that moment, I'm like, God, you know, I, I had been holding back on telling my own story for decades. At that moment, I decided I was going to tell what I had seen. And so, you know, through that lens, I, I've watched as Bill Clinton, you know, militarized immigration, criminalized immigrants with after the 1996 bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma, the Murrah federal building, I remember. Uh, he passed the anti-terrorist law of 1996 with Congress, and that laid the foundation for the what scholars like Juliet Stumpf uh, in Oregon call the crimigration crisis, although some scholars now have a 
an issue with that word. But still, the idea that the fact of subsuming immigration under what used to be like a misdemeanor now becoming this criminal act begins with Bill Clinton. So then you, I watched as George Bush uh, homeland securitized immigration by creating the Department of Homeland Security, moving immigration from being in the Justice Department to being in this new hyper military and paramilitary structure of Homeland Security. And then I watched as the Obama administration expanded these patterns and ex extended them into new areas, promising, to, for example, to do away with what's known as 287G, which was um, and secure communities, which are the kind of instruments that the police departments used to pick up migrants and work with immigration to jail and deport or imprison them. And so I also started noticing uh, you know, that Obama, like around 2011, had started us on the path of massified child separation. Thousands of children were separated, not as a policy, but as a practice, right? Because even my peers in the media, they'll go back and do these fact check, like factcheck.org and other organizations, journalist organizations will say, no, 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 Obama did not have a policy of separating thousands of children. And they'll leave it at that. They won't mention the fact that, oh yeah, Obama had a practice of separating thousands of children that I, many of us knew and saw and spoke to these parents and kids. So, you know, I've watched as the Obama administration started doing, you know, doing what people are calling Trump fascist for, Obama did. He laid the foundation for this. And it, it was clear to me what was happening when Trump started that Democratic Party operatives had anticipated a, um, had anticipated the 2020 election and that child separation, if it got out, would destroy their ethical, moral, whatever have left of, of the tatters of their ethical, moral ethos. And so they started, um, I mean, somebody even mentioned there's like a memo that groups like, you know, that, that some groups have shared, but they, they created like these astroturf groups, like you can look them up, they're called Families Belong Together. I went and I looked at Families Belong Together and I looked at, for example, who founded the organization. There were like 10 founders, six of whom were Democratic, were operatives of the Obama administration, the Obama campaign, or the Clinton campaign. And so, oh, wow, look at this. And then I started looking at the coverage, and I wrote a piece for the Columbia Journalism Review documenting the way that Central Americans had been erased from our own stories, except for Im images of pain and sound bites of suffering that are still the prevailing images of Central Americans in the media. And they were replaced by, guess who? Jay Johnson, the guy who created the cages, Cecilia Munoz, the brown face that they put up to explain away these horrific practices as if they didn't exist, and other um, kind of more intersectional faces that provided legitimacy to practices that we call fascist when Trump does them. So this is a sophisticated operation that the Democratic Party set up to protect itself. And so this this same set of, uh, of, of interests continues to operate and they go and are attack dogs on Trump. 
Now, I, I encourage your, 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 your listeners and viewers to keep track of these issues of caging and of child separation and of killings at the border. And if Joe Biden gets elected, watch for groups like Families Belong Together. Let's see if they are as dogged in the pursuit of justice when Joe Biden holds the reins as when Donald Trump, because these groups and the individuals that make them up, all of them, including people like Julian Castro, were completely silent mm. about the caging, concentration camps, and killings of children, parents, and migrants by the Obama administration. I'm reminded of when uh, John Favreau, who's a former speechwriter for Obama, he tweeted some something indignant about kids in cages. And it was a picture of kids in cages under the administration that he served in. So he deleted the tweet. And Rachel Maddow, the liberal cable host, did something recently too, where she did a segment about the cruelty towards immigrants and showed pictures also from Obama. But on a positive note, is it perhaps encouraging that Democrats have boxed themselves in on this so that if Biden wins, it will be very difficult to backtrack and revert to the policies that they had under Obama? Oh, yeah, Aaron. I'm I'm, I'm not alone anymore. I'm now a published author on a national scale. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right by a major big five publisher. My books everywhere, books are sold. You know, I was in the New York Times. I was in the LA Times. I haven't pierced some of the other media, but I'm still working on that. But nonetheless, I'm no, I remember when I was on Democracy Now!, I think you were on there when uh, Obama yeah. got elected. Yeah. 2008. I was there predicting that night, watch, Obama's going to come back and bite us in the ass on immigration. Hmm. And six months later, I was on Democracy Now! with Arti Shahani, uh, who was then with Families uh, for Freedom. Hmm. And Arti and I were documented how the Obama administration had completely started the betrayal as early as five months after by, instead of abolishing 287G secure communities, these abominable programs that enable police fascism and immigrant communities. The Obama administration made it, they expanded it from certain locales throughout the United States. And this was the motor for what became the th record breaking and still world record holding 3 million deportations of the Obama administration. So, you know, I, you know, I, I was pretty much alone with Arti and other, very few of us on the margin of national discourse on immigration where people wouldn't even talk about deportation. Well, now cut, you know, uh, 12 years later, there's a whole generation of young people, there's media, there are people that are very conscious of what happened with Trump on these issues, even liberal people. And it's gonna be difficult for liberals to deny, even though they're gonna put up Kamala Harris to try to cover it up and make it nice, make it sound good. It's going to be difficult for them to deny the caging, uh, concentration camps, and killing that will likely continue under Joe Biden if I read the tea leaves of his administration well. So I, I'm optimistic that the forces of good will rise powerfully to help really bring a true end because that's the only thing that will stop these practices. I mean, because it has to do with not just, I don't think these people are evil, quote unquote, it's, it has to do with climate change. You know, I've been following immigration, I go to international uh, 
conferences and the Pentagon is in increasingly at these conferences and they're whispering in the ear of governments like Dominican Republic to stop Haitian migration and to repress Haitians. They're whispering in the ear of Mexico to go hard on Central American migrants. They're going hard. They're going to Guatemalan leaders and telling them to go hard on Salvadorans and so forth. And so um, a lot of this has to do with the fact that the Pentagon understands that somewhere between a half a billion to a billion people are going to be uprooted by climate change. So if you want to understand why, for example, Barack Obama is doing things that you call Donald Trump a fascist for, it has to do with the reasons of state, climate change. They're concerned about climate change as a national security issue. And instead of trying to resolve climate change, which would require redistribution of wealth, dismantling capitalism as we know it, they're doing what they do best, which is police migrants and communities. So I have a lot of the details of these kinds of things. And I don't talk about climate change, but the, the processes uh, that I described, the ways of thinking, and but also the spirit of fighting and struggle that overcomes these challenges is in my book. There's also a lot in your book about gangs. Let me ask you about that briefly. Attorney General William Barr plays a, a central role in your book. Not so much now, but back when he served under the first Bush administration. I'm wondering if you could talk about the um, just that period. You have you know the end of the war in El Salvador with peace accords, and that coincides with the LA riots in 1992, which you witnessed. And then you have the, the you know the counterinsurgency, the counterinsurgency, and the violence that the U.S. exported to El Salvador. Coming back to uh, you know permeate U.S. police departments and also gangs, gangs as a direct result of the atrocities that the U.S. fueled in Central America, uh, including El Salvador. So talk up to us about that period and your your immersion in it. Well, I, you know, I I try to do it in my book Unforgetting. I try to show in actual experience and lived experience in the streets and whatnot, what people like Stuart Schrader, a great scholar of policing will tell you about, which is counterinsurgency policing. And so I came up with this idea of circuits of counterinsurgency policing because of what I had witnessed, because I witnessed, for example, US Pentagon trainers go to train the death squads and the military responsible for killing most of the 75 to 8,000 people killed in El Salvador during the war, including friends of mine. Uh, death squads that also pursued me, by the way. Um, I then saw as after the war, those Pentagon trainers came, were, came to, guess where? They came to local police departments all over the U.S. Uh, and so you have Pentagon trainers going to train people in Portland where you have you know, now the, you know, local federal authorities are kidnapping protesters. You have um, police department in New York, the LAPD getting training from counterinsurgency. And then they're calling it anti-gang uh, uh, programs like the crash, the now defunct crash program that was exposed during what was known as the Rampart scandal when I was living in L.A. where we found out, the world found out that um, the LAPD was murdering innocents. They were killing gang members and others. Uh, they were 
robbing banks. They were in cahoots with gangs. They were some of them were even gang members themselves, and they had like their own gang inside the LAPD. They were dealing narcotics. There was all kinds of corruption, murder, and you name it. The things that they're supposed to be fighting, they became. And so, and this was like on a large scale, so that LAPD, I don't think, has still not recovered completely from the devastation to their image from the Rampart Police Candle. And so, in 1992, they were they used the riots to pit gangs against each other in more intensified ways, and they did it with the help of Attorney General William Barr, who came and uh, to the to LA and announced that he was redeploying. 300 FBI agents in what was then the most massive redeployment of FBI resources in U.S. history. And he redeployed away from external threats and focused them on gangs. And uh, there is born the war on gangs. And then William Barr's uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service, because remember, it was under the Justice Department of the Attorney General, collaborated with LAPD to then deport on a, by the thousands uh, gang members who had started adopting, you know, more violent methods because they were pushed to it by both the Crips and the Bloods and the Mexican Mafia who were, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, you know there was a vice grip between those gangs and the LAPD's increased violence. So the Salvadoran gangs started getting more violent, started getting better armed. And there is born this idea of the Salvadoran gangs being the most violent gang on earth and all these lies that have no statistical basis. So then William Barr also sent, remember, we're talking about 1992, the same year that the peace accords happened in El Salvador. So they're trying to rebuild the country, reconstitute the police forces that we defeated and dismantled in the death squads. And what does William Barr do? He de he exports U.S.-style policing that, of what we call uh, broken windows that, you know, Rudy Giuliani and others, uh, you know, promote here, and which is what basically the policing that Black Lives Matter is fighting rather militarized counterinsurgency policing. So then, you know, you have the remilitarization by policing in El Salvador. And so William Barr has played an outsized role in the life of not just the gangs, but of El Salvador, but also of the policing of our lives here in the U.S. because, you know, those Pentagon trainers came here to to to, to militarize our police forces. And, and, and you know, I, I, William Barr was in a press conference in the Oval Office just two months ago in July with Donald Trump in the Oval Office in a press conference focused on gangs. And they started using the terrorist language and they started introducing anti-terrorist legal instruments to, quote unquote, fight the gangs. And their rhetoric was is reaching like feverish heights again, terrorist, savage, and so they said, you know, they were having all this stuff. So I went and I called police departments in all the areas where MS-13 operates. And I found out from calling, say, uh, Los Angeles, PD, LAPD, uh, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, Long Island, and San Francisco, among others, and asking them, well, what's the homicide rate? Because that's, you know, one of the measures of terrorist intent is homicide rates. And I found out, like, here in San Francisco, in 2019, MS-13 killed all of Two people. This year, they've killed zero, according to my last interview with them. In Long Island, they killed a total of 5.5 for the last, on average, for the last 10 years. Now, remember, there are, FBI estimates there are about 10 million 
MS-13 members. And so these numbers, these very low homicide numbers are throughout the United States, but the image you're getting is completely different. And so, as I've said, in the month of August 2019, a handful of white supremacists armed with semi-automatic weapons killed in Dayton, Ohio, in here in San Jose, in Gilroy, and in uh, El Paso, remember those horrific incidents, and, and maybe one or two others. In that month of August 2019, a handful of these white supremacists killed more people than all of those 10,000 MS-13 members killed in the entire year. So this is like the scale of the, the lie. And so my book is to go into the humanity and the history and to give a more, yeah, I'll say it, dare I say, realistic picture of the gang themselves, the leaders, the, the children who were in the gangs, most of whom were not violent. You have 10,000 members, most of them are not killing people. That's just statistically a fact. And it runs contrary to everything that our media tells us about them, including liberal media. We're gonna wrap. For my last question, I wonder if you have thoughts on how we reckon with the past versus how we cover current atrocities and oppression today. So in the case of the U.S. legacy in Central America, it's still bewildering to me to see anyone attempt to portray the U.S. terror war there as anything other than what it was, which was a terror war, efforts to promote democracy. And sometimes they'll say, well, we made a few errors by promoting some bad people, but really we intended to do good. But yet there is still some openness to confronting the past, honestly. There, there is some willingness to it. What I struggle with is how it's more difficult, I find, to talk about the U.S. atrocities and terror wars that are going on today, even when they're being conducted by the same people. So, for example, Elliot Abrams is now back in the White House after working under Reagan. Now he's working for Trump and he's overseeing the coup attempt in Venezuela. And even though the U.S. is imposing murderous sanctions, denying Venezuelan kids food and medicine, openly trying to destroy the economy, possibly sending in mercenaries. You've had people arrested there and you've had, you know, open plots of the Venezuelan opposition members who were who the U.S. is supporting, you know, talking about sabotage and crippling infrastructure. All this is going on in front of our eyes. And there's a real difficulty in getting it discussed honestly in the media. I'm wondering if you could just talk about that, about that dichotomy, how we're willing to some of us are more willing to discuss the past than we are the present. Yeah, uh, I, you know, my book, I basically try to show the way that the past really does live in the present. Philosophers will tell you that, psychologists will tell you that, Politi some political scientists will tell you that, a few journalists will tell you that. So my job as an author, as a writer of nonfiction, uh, and Disney try to tell as a, a true and beautiful story as I can, is to, you know, get at the complexity of things. And so I'll give you just a concrete example. Look at Let's look at, like, my response to seeing those people kidnapped by uh, camouflaged men heavily armed with semi-automatic weapons, driving, um, un, you know, uh, unmarked vans, and they weren't wearing any badges. You know, those men grabbing protesters and dragging them into these unmarked vans and taking them away without reading their rights or anything. I see that in parts of my 
my face like here or this part of my arm will twitch sometimes because of my own bodily reaction to that because I see that in a very particular way through the lens of the past. Men who were uh, camouflaged, heavily armed, um, with semi-automatic weapons, etc., tried to pick me up and kill me in those ways in El Salvador. Some of the death squad operatives also operated in Los Angeles. You can look in the LA Times, look up my name, FBI, and Los Angeles Times, and you'll see that we were pursued by death squads in Los Angeles. So I have a very particular response that's informed by my past. But I think that's why I wrote my book. I wanted to make bring alive the understanding of not just these individuals like Elliot Abrams who, you know, apologized for and covered up mass murders like few people in, in U.S. history in Central America. Um, There's a reason he's a war criminal, he, but he should, should be a war criminal for mass murder, not just for the Iran-Contra. And so uh, when you, when, when, you know, there's individuals like that. There's, you know, there's this, uh, this military guy named Steele who even today I've gone to West Point. I've interviewed people that were like, you know, going, sending to the Middle East, uh, some of the leaders to the Middle East. And, you know, they would talk about people like Steele or this other war criminal named, um, uh, I forget his name right now, Wagostein. Wagostein, W-A-G-G-H-E-L-S-T-E-I-N, Wagostein and others, they would talk about them as heroes because uh, in Iraq and in other places, they offered what was the El Salvador solution. And that was basically using, uh, as part of the counterinsurgency, using death squads to kill civilians and people, political people targeted by this. So when I see those BORTAC units, right, because they were the people picking people up in Portland and other places are not from the local PD, they're from um, the federal government, the Border Patrol, which is a way to get around posse comitatus, which limits the ability of the US government, federal government, to enter within the borders with the military. So they go around it through these Border Patrol units, and these Border Patrol units started getting trained, guess where, at the School of the Americas, which is now called WINSEC, W-H-I-N-S-E-C, the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security. Um, and so WINSEC and School of the Americas was training these folks that are doing what they did to us in El Salvador. And so I'm right, I wrote my book as a as kind of a way to warn people. Hey, the, I my experience tells me be careful. The the division between rich and poor is surpassing that of El Salvador. So they're gonna introduce policing models and militarize a society like El Salvador because they don't want to solve the real problems. So watch out regardless of who's president. They're, they're really bringing us close to these really dangerous patterns. But I also talk about the spirit, the revolutionary organizing, where one in every three Salvadorans was organized against the state and how we defeated the fascist military dictatorship supported by the United States using the ingenuity and intrepid spirit and, and 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 training that you know this incredible movement that even the CIA had to respect in the 1980s which was the Salvadoran opposition and so my book contains my best attempt to kind of communicate the beauty and power of that spirit of opposition well roberto thank you for writing this book we can all learn a lot from it 
thank you for sharing your own personal history and your years of incisive reporting. It's uh, it's really an achievement. So thank you for writing it and congratulations on its publication. Thank you, Aaron. The book is called Unforgetting, a Memoir of Family, Migration, Gangs, and Revolution in the Americas. It's by Roberto Lovato. Thanks for joining me, Roberto. My pleasure. Thank you.